greener on the other side Caterpillar to a butterfly It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. Just getting started on the show today. Welcome and good morning. I'm away. Took a vacation for the weekend, but I'm bringing you a lot of my guest experts, some of the great interviews I had, plus some of your very seasonal, very right on cue topics and questions that we want to get into. But right now, we go back to February. It was during the Great Backyard Bird Count. I had a show dedicated to just that, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology up in Ithaca, New York. You know, and if you didn't participate, it's still not too late. You can use the free birding apps and count birds anytime you want. The two free apps you can download are the Merlin Bird ID app and the eBird app as well. But right now, my conversation with Melanie Furr, who's the educational director at Georgia Audubon and also volunteers at Wild Nest Bird Rehab and serves as the marketing chair on the board. Melanie, good morning. Good morning, Ashley. Thanks for having me. So Wild Nest Bird Rehab was established in 2020, and we take in injured and orphaned birds in Georgia, native birds, and restore them to health and return them to the wild. Now, what are the odds on, I mean, you think a lot of songbirds are so tiny. You know, I know there's maybe the Chattahoochee Nature Center and stuff that deals more with predatory birds or the larger birds like hawks and owls and things like that. But if you guys are working with some of our favorites, our little songbirds, what are the uh, the odds that they can be rehabbed from a little injury or a little sickness? Is, or is it looking pretty good? Yes, we have a lot of success. Of course, it depends on you know the situation that they come in. Most of the birds that we see come in you know, because of um, human impacts, not necessarily any um, harm intended, but the birds strike our windows or our cats catch them wow. or we trim our trees at an untimely time. So we do our best to try to uh, reduce those harms and educate people. But when, when they happen, we take the birds in and, and try to do our best to return them to health and back to the wild. I'm glad that you mentioned window strikes because that's something I get a question about every year. I don't know if it's, you know, more apt to happen during mating season or they just get a little confused when the sunlight changes at different times of year. But talk a little bit about that and why that is such a big deal. It really is a big deal. In fact, most people aren't aware that up to 2 billion birds perish from window collisions just, just in North America each year. So it's a huge loss of bird life and most of the collisions actually happen during spring and fall migration. Okay. So we are coming up to this time very soon where we're going to ask people to dim their lights at night for migrating birds. Believe it or not, light pollution is another big factor in window collisions because a lot of these small birds, believe it or not, are making their migratory journeys at nighttime. And when they fly over big cities like Atlanta, where our lights uh, disorient them from the night sky that's guiding them, they come down. And then that's when glass becomes more of a problem because they're they're down in an urban environment with fewer resources, um, sometimes disoriented. So both the light pollution and the window collisions take a big toll. Yeah, like doesn't Georgia Audubon does something like Project Safe Flight or something to really promote us keeping the lights out at night, right? Yes, we have Lights Out Atlanta and Project Safe Flight. Project Safe Flight is the monitoring that we do to to record the loss um, of birds traveling through our city during migration. 
So when people ask me about bird strikes, Melanie, I mean, I the simplest answer I can give them is uh, lights out is a great idea. Uh, but for during the daytime, like making sure you have a screen, you know, if you don't have a screen on your window, it's going to make it a little more reflective. But are, are there other tips or other ways folks can kind of keep those at a minimum? Yes, there are a lot of easy solutions um, to reducing bird collisions. Screens, as you mentioned, there are a lot of attractive decals that can readily be purchased online. There's a great product called Collide Escape uh, that you can apply to your windows. There are even sort of um, ultraviolet markers, kind of like highlighters, where you can just draw patterns on your window, anything to break up the reflection. All right, Melanie Furr, who is uh, the education director at Georgia Audubon and lends her time to Wild Bird or Wild Nest Bird Rehab. And the website's great, Melanie, wildnestbirdrehab.org. And what's so cool, you don't have to scroll very far, and then you find the little box, help, I found a bird, and then we can kind of make our way to you all if it gets to that critical point. Tell me the importance of the staff you've got and the volunteers and how you guys work so well. Yes, actually, we have no staff. We are 100% volunteer-led, and we are always looking for new volunteers. So if there's anyone out there that is looking to make a difference for our local native birds, we would love to have you. You can find information and um, fill out a form to volunteer on our website. Do they have to have any kind of knowledge of birds? No, we, oh. we offer uh, uh, it's hands-on, and we train you. We ask for folks to commit to a weekly shift, but we have lots of other opportunities for people that maybe can't make that commitment. We always have ways that people can help. And of course, an easy way to help is just by donating too. And rehabbing songbirds, um, you know, that comes with a cost, no matter the little treatment they need or something like that. Who pays for all of this? How are you guys funded? We are 100% donation-based, so we rely on people that bring us animals to make donations. We get out into the community and educate people and and hope to inspire people to give for that reason as well. And I went through this portion of the website last night because I think it's, it's really fun how you guys have people take the steps when they have found an injured bird you click that and it kind of gives you step one, two, three, what to do. And then if you get to this critical point, then text you guys a photo or bring the bird into all of you. Um, but y'all say time and time again, don't offer them water and try not to handle them. And that's instinctively what I want to do is pick up a little bird and pet it and make sure it's okay. But uh, tell us the reasons why we're not supposed to do those things. Yeah. So if you do find a bird that you you know fear is in trouble or has hit your window and is stunned, the best thing to do is just get it in a quiet, dark, warm place. You don't want to offer food or water. And I, I, I sort of liken it to if we are hurt and we're taken to the hospital, the first thing they do is not to feed us, right? They're going to um, sort of stabilize us, get us warm and comfortable. So that's exactly what we should do if we find a bird. Their birds have you know different anatomy than humans do, and there's a possibility of of choking them or aspirating them by trying to offer food or water. So the best thing to do is just get them warm and comfortable in a, um, a dark, safe place until you can reach out to us through our hotline or our website, as you said, has sort of an online flowchart. Uh, if this happens, then do this. 
uh, and takes you through the steps. I, I mean, I love that. There's maybe six, for instances, you all are going to see when you're out in, in the yard uh, coming up in the spring. You may see a baby. You may see one that got trapped. Maybe, like you said, Melanie, caught by a pet, sick or injured, or maybe stunned from a window collision. So either way, it kind of gives you the steps of what to do. Um, and what if, is it likely that we see nests that have fallen out of the trees and maybe there's still a good chance to save those babies or maybe if the eggs haven't even hatched yet? Yes. um, Believe it or not, a lot of times when we think a bird needs rescuing, it doesn't. And we have a lot of birds brought to us by well-meaning individuals who uh, just didn't know that they've actually just kidnapped a baby oh, from no. from its nest or a fledgling from the ground. I'd like to dispel the myth that handling a bird or handling a nest will make the parents reject it. That is categorically untrue. So if you find a bird without its feathers, a nestling, and you know where the nest is, you can absolutely put the baby back. Mom and dad will resume care. Likewise, if you see a feathered bird, it's it's hopping around, but it's in a road or in danger, You can move that bird to a bush nearby, out of harm's way, and mom and dad will continue care. So if you're not sure, yeah, go, you know, go to our website and go through those steps and we can walk you through whether or not you need to intervene. That is a really, really cool flow chart. So again, it's wildnestbirdrehab.org. And where are you located? We are at Legacy Park in Decatur easy to find. And, you know, once you go through this flowchart, you may not even need to bring the bird in. They may give you the steps and tools to to help the bird. And you mentioned a fledgling, and we're going to see that, too, when they get to the edge of the nest or the edge of the tree cavity, try to make that first flight, and then, uh, and they, they crash on the ground, right? So in that, for instance, maybe let them get their bearings, stretch those wings a little bit, and they'll probably fly, right? They just got off to a bad start. Yeah, and a lot of birds don't fly for the first two or three days. You know, a nest is not a safe place. They're just basically sitting ducks there um, for predators. So as soon as they're able to hop out, they they do sometimes before they actually fly. But they, you know, they spend a couple days on the ground. Mom and dad come and feed on the ground and they practice um, their flying skills until they they're ready to get up on their own. Melanie, I've got one more question for you. Um, in, in my shows leading up to this great backyard bird count and this weekend uh, for the citizen science you know, project for all of us to do to help Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a couple of folks have asked me about mockingbirds in particular, and you may or may not know the answers. Uh, one caller last week said that she thinks there's a decline in mockingbirds. She hasn't seen as many. Um, and then I had someone on the other side of the coin that says... I've got mockingbirds and they run all the other birds away off of my feeder. What can I do? So that seems to be a little bit of a bully. Um, and you, you notice when they're there, but apparently this one caller noticed when they're gone. What do you know about mockingbirds? Mockingbirds are doing okay as, you know, as, a, as a population, unlike you know, nearly half of our North American birds that are in peril and at the risk of extinction by the end of the century if, if things don't change. Mockingbirds are doing all right, but they do have seasonal movements. They don't migrate per se, but they may spend the winter in one yard and then move to nest to another you know, neighborhood in the spring. So it's possible you might not see your mockingbirds during certain times of year. They do tend to sort of dominate the feeders, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're lots of fun to watch. So I just try to appreciate, for their, appreciate them for their brashness. And sass. <laughs> and so we just hope the other birds can kind of get some time into the feeder when the mockingbirds are distracted, right? <laughs> Usually my mockingbird finds his 
preferred feeder. So I just have others out with other other items that uh, maybe the mockingbirds don't care for as much and other birds like. There you go. That's, variety, that's a happy compromise. Variety is the... Yeah, variety is the spice of life, right? <laughs> it is, so. it is. Well, Melanie, I really appreciate you taking the time um, looking for volunteers, looking for monetary donations, since you guys are a nonprofit, wildnessbirdrehab.org. We would love to have some of my listeners help you guys out or really get interested. And uh, maybe some listening have the skills that you all could use there at the rehab facility. No skills re- required. As I said, we will train you. And I, I'm glad to be here. And I hope some listeners will join our team. I can talk about birds all year long. See, so. I could too. But yeah, all year we love our birds. Melanie Fur, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that, Ashley. And coming back with the top three things to do in the landscape this weekend, you're listening to Green and Growing right here on WSB. Green, Green and Growing. Ashley Frasca's top three things to do this weekend. All right, getting into fall. I love it. Number one, installing woody ornamental plants and herbaceous perennials just make life easier for you. They're better for the environment. They stick around. And as these plants shut down for the winter, the roots are still going to grow, but they're just less demanding for water and fertilizer. Number two, if you're planning to overseed a fescue lawn, that's great. This is the time to do it. It's a cool season grass, so it really, really does well with the cooler weather. But remember, Do not do that and put down a pre-emergence herbicide. You really need to evaluate which of the two tasks would benefit your lawn the most. And a pre-emergence herbicide is done by chemical application by professionals for us doing it ourselves, like Scott's Halts or something like that, uh, done as a granular in a spreader that really should have been done late August to at least, you know, before mid-September But again, that stays in the top layer of soil for 8, 10, 12 weeks, and it's going to inhibit the fescue seed from germinating. So if you didn't do it, you can go ahead and do fescue. And number three, UGA turf grass specialist Clint Waltz reminds us that if this month and the next few are dry, keep the lawns watered. Warm season grasses will need it until they go dormant. And if you're seeding a fescue lawn like we just talked about, make sure it consistently gets at least one inch of water per week because that grass has got to establish. It's got to stay hydrated. All right, when we come back, a conversation with a local Atlanta man about daffodils, all you've ever wanted to know about growing them, the hybridizations that he does. But this is the time to start thinking about those things that bloom in the spring, what gardeners need to be doing right now, this time of year, next on Green and Growing. Stay tuned to 95.5 WSB. It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. All right, folks, we're back. It's Green and Growing right here on 95.5 WSB. I'm your host, Ashley Frasca. Happy to be with you. And I have had a heck of a year traveling around, talking to different garden clubs, 
so many great people that I meet, experts and members of the garden clubs that share memories, stories with me. And I recall back in April speaking at the Garden Club of Georgia convention. It was a Stone Mountain Park. What a fabulous crowd that was and a great time. And the speaker that was on right before me was Greg Freeman, the daffodil guy. And we got to talking. Greg lives uh, right at the Georgia-South Carolina line, knows all there is to know about daffodils. So this is getting to be the time of year. Here we are in late September to start thinking about that. Even though it's a spring flower, Greg will give you the reasons why. But I've got Greg Freeman on the phone with me now. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Ashley, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure talking with you today. You know, you've got such good passion and knowledge of daffodils that you were invited to speak at a number of garden clubs and things, too. You're published in the Daffodil Journal. Uh, What titles do you hold and juggle as folks may know you as the daffodil guy? Well, I'm currently president of the Georgia Daffodil Society. I serve on the board of directors of the American Daffodil Society as a regional director, and of course, I'm I'm one of these rare people throughout the world that are actually obsessed with hybridizing daffodils. We are not numbered in the thousands. We are there are probably <laughs> dozens of people in the United States, and probably that many in, in the United Kingdom and Australia and New Zealand. You know that that we make up this little club that that consists of people interested in in producing that next exciting daffodil. Of course, you know we're rather obsessed, but there are lots of other people. Who, for them, daffodils are something you plant in the yard and you look forward to every spring. And for others, you know, they're interested in them for other aspects. I enjoy hybridizing, judging, and exhibiting daffodils. Now, let so me ask I really you, take it to every level. <laughs> yeah, and l- let me ask you, for folks that may not know, I mean, I had a guest on years ago, Suzanne Franklin, who was a big hybridizer of daylilies. Tell us what that actually means for the consumer and the gardener, the work you do as a hybridizer. Well, I think hybridizers can have different objectives in mind. I, I maintain the the idea that a great show flower can and should be a great garden flower. Mm-hmm. You will hear in, in daffodil circles, uh, particularly at our national conventions, as well as in, in, you'll read it in garden catalogs, people will talk about a great garden flower or someone will refer to a flower as a great show flower. Um, I don't know why in the world the two can't be one and the same. In fact, I think for for anything to be worthy of registration and exhibiting, it should be a great garden flower. Uh, but often, what you'll see are great garden flowers, or what are what we call 55 mile an hour flowers. They look great planted on last, but they're not really capable of winning the big ribbons at the shows. Okay. And then a lot of times you will have daffodils that are great show flowers. You can plant one bulb, and, and five years later, you still have that one bulb. It hasn't reproduced vegetatively. Mm-hmm. It is not a good garden flower. No matter how beautiful it is, no matter you know how how well it performs in the shows, if it's not if it's not going to put on offsets and it's not going to put on a great big display in the garden and and, and have longevity, it's not a great garden flower. I want to produce the same thing in the in the same flower. I want garden sure. and show quality. Um, a lot of hybridizers are focused on miniatures, what we call intermediates. A standard daffodil would be the typical large daffodil that you see mm-hmm. in the box store. The miniature would be that tiny little thing like a tete-a-tete, and an intermediate would be somewhere in between. Miniatures are very hot right now. Okay. So a lot of hybridizers have focused their attention on that, especially if they're wanting something that perhaps a Dutch grower would market, mass-produced, send it all over the world where daffodils are grown. Those are the kinds of flowers that a lot of people are focusing on as far as commercial appeal. Sure. I don't care about commercial appeal. If it doesn't appeal to me, I don't care if it 
if it has commercial appeal. I want something that pleases me first. And hi- so that's kind of my angle that I okay. take with hybridizing. Uh, I have miniatures, intermediates, and standards, and I'm not really particular about one or the other. I and just I want a great quality flower. Greg, without getting into the really scientific details, hybridizing, you're kind of messing with the DNA of these flowers, like you said, to produce a bigger, stronger, more desired flower, and that can mm-hmm. be better in the garden and better at shows, yeah? Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. All right. So when and we met at the GCG convention back in April, your presentation, Georgia On My Mind, 12 Essential Daffodils of Georgia Gardens. Uh, do you want to share some of your favorites or can you quickly kind of go down the list of 12 types that you think Georgia gardeners would perk up at? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the, first of all, let me explain that daffodils are classified in 13 divisions. So number one, you have the trumpets. And a trumpet is defined as the, the corona or the cup is longer than the um, the perianth or the petal. Then you have the large cups where the um, the cup is equal to or shorter than the perianth. And then, of course, the small cups, which, you know, you can <laughs> decipher. The, 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 the corona or the cup is, is more of a third of the way, basically. The doubles um, are the fours. The fives are what we call trianders. They descend from... Um, the Narcissus trianders, they have that drooping look and often what we call a reflexed petal or reflexed perianth that leans back a little. The Cyclamenius, the Sitzes, they have that swept back look like the wind is just right through them. And then, of course, the sevens of the jonquils, the eights of the Tazettas, and then you get down to the nines of the Poeticus hybrids, the tens of the Bulbocodiums, the eleven are the split cups, the twelve are a miscellaneous class, tete-a-tete would fall in that category, thirteen right. are species. Now, out of all of these, in my presentation, I gave some wonderful examples. Some yeah. are very easy to find, some are not, uh, but they're worth seeking out. My favorite of them all is the division for the double crackington. Ooh. It is a fabulous flower. It, it can come just one big, massive, looks like a dahlia almost. Wow. Uh, it's just such a such a big, nice flower with um, just layers of, of petals stacked on top of each other, and it can be just a tremendous show flower. Another favorite is hot gossip. I have won more ribbons with hot gossip than any other daffodil in my possession. What hot color? Gossip is what a color is two. that? It is a yellow with an orange cup, Ooh. and it can be almost red. Okay. Hot gossip is very intense. You know, here in the American South, let me explain. We have lots of flowers that have orange cups or red in the cup, but our heat and our humidity and all of those factors, the sun will just bleach that out oh. in a matter of days. Hot gossip seems to hold its color. Another favorite, probably out of these 12 or so, would be Actea. And that is a, is a Poeticus hybrid. It's actually a historic daffodil. It dates back to... Uh, pre-1919, and it's an old Dutch variety that still wins in the historic classes and shows. It's very versatile. Here in the American South, we don't always do well with Poeticus hybrid daffodils. This one loves our weather. It's interesting, Greg, that you mention uh, the history of daffodils and us, you know, having seen them in early, early landscapes. You know, we we know Atlanta very well. Oakland Cemetery is a great place to visit in the fall, and that's a place I think of where uh, plants that are true to historical form that go around the grave sites in the era that that person's life was. History of plants is so important. And you talked to me off air a little bit about helping folks find something that may be historical to architecture or, you know, a building that daffodils could kind of play into that. That's neat. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, a lot of folks who are who are into historic preservation, restoration of architecture, 
maybe wanted to get with the designer and redesign or redecorate their their decor to represent the original era in which the house was built. Many times these people don't give thought to the to the garden, to mm-hmm. the property. You know, we think about historically what would have been planted on that property. You know, if you have a if you have one of those wonderful little arts and crafts houses from the early uh, 20th century, it's perfectly fine to plant. You know, the the latest hybrid from whomever. That's there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're wanting to maintain some sense of integrity as far as the era of that property. I highly recommend seeking out daffodils that would have been grown in that area, that would have been grown in those similar conditions. And and there are a lot of people that really get into this, and and they they seek out those historic cultivars. And the wonderful thing is we have lots of people in the American Daffodil Society who are all about preserving those historic cultivars. And many of those cultivars stand the test of time because they're so darn good. They perform well in the garden. They make a beautiful display. They're not real prone to disease or to our southern heat. It's a win-win situation. So if you have an older property and, and, and you know you can kind of date the property, there are daffodils that are very appropriate to that property. And, and a lot of times, of course, on older properties, you'll find a lot of our old species that the settlers and the, um, the early immigrants brought with them. Um, those kinds of flowers stand the test of time, and they're very versatile. So uh, there are lots of options. And... And I love to explore old home places. For example, um, there's there's the estate of Charles Pinckney here in South Carolina in upstate. He had a Woodburn plantation. Mm-hmm. And so Woodburn, I have actually gone there and planted daffodils appropriate to the property that would have been common here in the upstate of South Carolina. And, and we have certainly done that as part of the Georgia Daffodil Society at Oakland. So you can go through Oakland at any given time throughout the spring and find um, some amazing yes. um, historic daffodils. One of my Absolutely. favorite gardens in the fall. Well, listen, we've got to go to break, and I want you all to follow Greg Freeman's Garden Chronicle, and you can see editions of the uh, chronicles and the newsletters and things that he has written at gregfreeman.garden is the website. And when we come back, the timing on our conversation being in late September is not coincidence. What gardeners need to be doing right now, plus all of the different ways you can uh, find Greg online, some of his recommendations for for us when we come back you're listening to green and growing on 95.5 wsb the update on the weekend weather brought to you by finley roofing so i'm back with greg freeman who is really into daffodils and is currently the president of the georgia daffodil society known by many as the daffodil guy but we talked about the historical aspect of some of these plants and it's really cool to maybe go back and do some research on some of that but even just for the regular you know, leisurely gardener who wants a good source for some jonquils, for some daffodil bulbs, where do you recommend they shop? You don't have to be as obsessed as I am to enjoy <laughs> daffodils. A great source that a lot of us daffodil folks really enjoy buying from is Brent and Becky's bulbs. They have a wonderful selection of daffodils from all of these divisions that I have mentioned previously, including some of the historics. Brent and Becky are also daffodil folks, so they know their daffodils. If you need to ask for advice, you can you can do that when you call for orders. I generally buy from them every year. Another company that has a wonderful selection is Van England, and that's V-A-N-E-N-G-E. L-E-N, Van England. And both of them are online, Van England and Brent and Becky's. September is certainly an ideal time. I generally plant on Thanksgiving Day. Okay. That's just my tradition. Generally plant your standard or your intermediate bulbs about six or seven inches deep. Your miniatures maybe only need to go three or four inches. 
but some people will plant them deeper. There's nothing wrong with that. They just have to grow further out of the ground. And what do we need to do um, to the soil before we drop those in? And do we need a little bulb digger? Okay. I take a little spade and I dig a, a large enough hole that's about double the size of the bulb. And you can use a, one of those bulb augers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you fit that on the end of your drill or, or whatever the case might be, or some of them, they're manual. You have to turn them yourself. Those are great, but I just generally will dig down with a spade. As far as additives, some people will put bone meal and bulb fertilizer and all of that kind of stuff. I generally don't put anything in the hole with the daffodil. If I've got good soil that I'm working with, I don't add anything. If I want to fertilize, I do that later on when I have foliage up out of the ground and that sort of thing. You know, if you put the wrong thing down into that hole with the bulb, you're going to potentially cause damage to your bulb or, or lose it altogether. Okay. Greg, great experience and an enthusiastic uh, group of folks, too, with the Georgia Daffodil Society. Give us some upcoming events, and then there's something exciting happening next spring. Georgia Daffodil Society every year has an annual bulb sale, and this coincides on the same day as our meeting, our fall meeting. Our bulb sales are held at the Peachtree Road Farmer's Market at the Cathedral of St. Philip, Saturday morning, October 28th. So you want to get there and, and take advantage of what we have to offer. And then in 2024, we will be having our spring show at Johns Creek Baptist Church in Alpharetta, beginning on Thursday, March 7th to Saturday afternoon on the 9th. Now, is that open and to the public, or is it just people growing daffodils? Absolutely. We want the public to come out in droves. Please come. We think that's going to be a great location because of the proximity to a lot of garden club folks. Lovely. The Georgia Daffodil Society, a, a really fun annual fall bulb sale coming up, as Greg mentioned, October 28th. And then the show, which I will keep you all posted of in March. And we start to think about our daffodils blooming alongside. I love doing arrangements with the Lenten Rose, with the hellebores. That color difference is so striking. Greg, Greg Freeman, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing some of your enthusiasm and and passion about daffodils. We'll have to have another conversation at another time of the year, but give folks the website again to where they can read more. You can visit my website, gregfreeman.garden. You can also visit the Georgia Daffodil Society. I think that's georgiadaffodilsociety.com. I hope that everyone will, will really experience daffodils to the fullest. They're a wonderful garden flower, and we're delighted to, to always talk with people and, and help them learn more about them. Thanks so much, and have a good weekend. Thank you, Ashley. You have a great one, too. Hour number two, coming up on Green and Growing, a conversation I had with a wise group of gentlemen who started a group, GFASTI, Georgians for a Safer Tree Industry. Really a lot of good knowledge here from business owners, next on WSB.